Let's generate our motivation. So every morning when we wake up, we train our mind to uh, have our first thoughts be to not harm sentient beings, to benefit them, to expand our bodhicitta motivation today, and to understand that things do not exist as they appear to our senses and then to get up and do our morning routine and go on with the day. So setting the motivation at the beginning is very important, even though during the day sometimes we may lose our motivation. Still, by the force of habit, again and again, training the mind and thinking like this, then it becomes more and more natural. And in the same way, when we notice habitual disturbing thoughts, thoughts of judgment, thoughts of commentary on other people's actions or looks or lives, to train the mind to right away notice those thoughts and then have the thought of I don't want to waste my life thinking like that and then to turn the mind to a thought of love wanting that person and others to have happiness in its causes or to compassion wanting them to be free of dukkha and its causes. So all of this is uh, really a process of familiarization and training, which means it has to be done repeatedly, which means there's no shortcuts. (laughs) But as much as we can remember to do this and do this, then of course, the swifter our mind will transform. And it's amazing also to witness that when we think critical thoughts about others, how uh, unhappy and disturbed our own mind is. And yet when we think kind thoughts to other about others, how happy our own mind becomes. So that could be one more reason why, why His Holiness says, if you want to be selfish, be wisely selfish and think about others, take care of others. So with that kind of motivation, let's share in the Dharma this evening.
So just a little reminder about the topic of the 12 links. It is not an easy topic. We're also studying it from the viewpoint of, of two, two different viewpoints, the Pali scriptures and the um, Mahayana scriptures, the Sanskrit tradition. And also, um, each link, yeah, the way it's written, sometimes you have the name of that link and then you have all sorts of different information regarding that link stuffed into or piled into or more respectfully put into <laughs> that one link. And then it's up to you to see, oh, this is in this context. This is speaking of it in this context and so on. Okay. And uh, other times it seems, it may seem to you like something's getting left out. So I want to go back to the confusion that some people had last week about the third link according to the Sanskrit tradition. So the third link is consciousness, and it talks about two moments of consciousness. The, the consciousness on which the karmic seed is placed, and then the consciousness that is the first moment of the uh, life in which that karmic seed has ripen ripened to throw that, you know, or propel that particular life. Okay. So there was confusion. Oh, it talks about it here in this life. And then you could have eons and then the other one comes here. So what happened to the consciousness in all those eons between when I created the karma, you know, 50 million eons ago and when it ripens in the future, you know, 275.9 eons in the future, uh, what happened to the consciousness in between? Yeah, did it cease to exist? Did it get lost? Uh, what, what, you know? Okay, so I thought of a good example to clarify this. Okay, so let's say you haven't seen an old friend in a really long time, okay, maybe 20 years, and then you saw him today. You just bumped into him somewhere. Okay, you know, you're both going for your COVID shots and you bumped into this. So you remember him from 20 years ago. Oh, that that's, uh, you know, Harold. And oh, and then here's Harold 20 years later. And so you're telling your friend about this thing of, you know, oh, I bumped into Harold and I hadn't seen him for 20 years and then I saw him today. Yeah. Does your friend think that in between the, the 20 years and today that Harold, or do you think that Harold just vanished? <laughs> you know, because you didn't see him and you didn't talk about him in your life. Your friend never heard you mention him. You know, does that mean that he just ceased? You know, no, it just means that when you're explaining your relationship with Harold, you're just talking from a, per, a certain perspective of when you met him 20 years ago and today when you saw him. Okay? 
So I, I think Harold existed in those those intervening years. Yeah, yeah. Do you think so, or is he hiding under your bed or in a closet or? You know, what happened to the poor guy? Okay? So, um, you know, we have to learn how to think about each of these links. Yeah. But one thing is, okay, the, one, the previous link causes the following link. In some ways of uh, explaining how the 12 links flow. We'll get into this in future uh, chapters. In other ways of explaining how the order in which they ripen, you start with some here, then you go to the middle, some a few in the middle, then you do the ones in between here and in between there that ripen at the same time. Great. Just relax. You know, it's like... It may not be the way that you would have written it up, but, you know, this is the way it was explained. And, uh, and it's interesting to think of the different orders in which you can explain these things happening. Okay? And you get really nice and confused from it. But, you know, that's always a teacher's delight when you can make the students really confused. Geshe Sana mentioned when he was teaching us Tsongkhapa's illumination of the path. Yeah. Was that the text? Yeah, I think it was that text. And no, it wasn't. Well, it was one of Tsongkhapa's texts, put it that way. And he got us so confused. And he was just like, (laughs) you know? Because we were talking about this this example, you've probably heard it, about the magician, yeah, who conjures, who has sticks and uh, stones that and conjures them to be horses and elephants, and the the whole thing that that's trying to describe from the Svatantrika view. We got so confused. Yenla was so happy, you know, because when you're confused, yeah, if you're sincere, then you really think about it and try and find an answer. Okay. So if you're not so sincere, well, I'm confused. The teacher's a lousy teacher. Yeah. Where does that get us? Okay. But if we're confused, I don't understand this. How could this put together? You know, so then you read other sources, you think about it, you talk about it, about it with your friends, yeah, and you try and figure it out. What came clearer about my confusion with that number three is that in the first moment, the causal consciousness, you're talking about the consciousness just being a carrier of a seed. Yeah, it's the, the, the consciousness right. is what the seed is planted But then into. in the resultant consciousness, you're talking about the actual ripening of that seed. Right, yeah. It's not the consciousness that's carrying it anymore. So that yeah. seems confusing to me. Well, <laughs> we could have the, the 12 links according to Venerable Sepal, and then... That would be good, you know. We could each write our own 12 links, how it makes sense to us. But, you know, 
Yeah. There's lots of things that don't make sense. Yeah. Although what's so interesting is our hallucinated mind, we believe whatever it perceives. Isn't that interesting, you know? Yeah. We don't we don't question how we perceive something, how we interpret it, what we think it means. So Okay, so now name and form in the Pali tradition. So name, which the the Pali people often translate as mentality, and form, which they often translate as materiality. This is their translations. There must, must have been a reason, and this is the way it is, okay? So name and form are major aspects of our experience. Form is the four great elements forming the body. So I just want to read, um, you know, go back to the Sanskrit tradition where it said form is the embryo that begins to grow in the womb. Okay. Uh, because the, the Pali tradition talks about name and form. The, the Sanskrit tradition, the name and form exists in a very small amount of time. In the Pali tradition, it exists for a much, much longer time. Okay. So in the Sanskrit tradition, it's just the embryo. Yeah. In the Pali tradition, it's the body. Yeah. But then when we talk about the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, and then the forms derived from them, such as color, smell, taste, tactile sensations, and so on. Okay, so the the four great elements are metaphorical designations for the different qualities of matter. But sometimes I've heard the four great elements described as partless particles, that they're actual particles of earth, water, fire, and air. Okay, here, uh, but then in other uh, contexts, they're described as qualities of uh, material things of form. Okay, so in that uh, context, earth is solidity, yeah, the property of resistance and hardness. Water is fluid and cohesive, that aspect. So it makes things stick together. Yeah. That's why people lick their fingers when they turn pages, which you should, should not do with a Dharma text. Okay. Um, fire is the quality of heat and energy. And air represents mobility, contraction, and expansion. Okay, so we have the outer four elements and then the inner four elements. Yeah, the outer ones are the ones in the environment, the inner ones are the ones that compose our body. Yeah, and then there's subtle four elements and so forth. We're not talking about those now. Okay, name is a collective term for the other three mental aggregates. So for feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors, yeah, and the five mental factors of contact, 
feeling discrimination, intention, and attention that accompany consciousness and are indispensable to making sense of and naming things in the world around us. So it's interesting here, talking about name, it's three of the four mental consciousness, uh, mental, uh, yeah, mental aggregates. Yeah, the one that's left out is consciousness, but that's getting continued over from the third link. But it's not the same consciousness, yeah? Because when you, uh, if you were a human being in this life, you have the human aggregates. If you're a deva in the next life, you get the deva aggregates. If you become a lizard in the life after that, then you get animal, specifically lizard aggregates, okay? So the the aggregates change and the consciousness changes, but there's some continuity in that there's consciousness in all these different lives. Okay. So when the object, cognitive faculty, and corresponding consciousness come together, contact is essential for any cognition. Now... Right there, what they're doing is they're changing from talking about the four aggregates as something that is uh, being, you know, carried from one life to not carried, but, you know, there's a continuity of the four aggregates between one life and the next, and how particularly in the next life, that is the result of one, two, and three A links. Yeah, it, 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 how how those consciousnesses arise. Now it's shifting, and it's going to talk about how we perceive things in the middle of a paragraph. Okay, so when the object, the cognitive faculty, and the corresponding consciousness come together, contact is essential for any cognition. So now they're explaining. Uh, these five mental factors that constitute um, uh, name. They're explaining, explaining them, okay? So once contact has occurred, attention functions to bring the mind to the object. Then feeling, discrimination, and intention arise as ways of experiencing and relating to the object. Okay. So although all five mental factors are present, the strength of each one will vary according to the mental state. Yeah. In the same way that of the four elements, they will vary. You know, we have all four of, of the form elements. Yeah. Earth, water, fire, air. But their composition and their, you know, how much of one and how much of the other will vary according to uh, the thing we're talking about. So there's going to be more earth element in the table and more water element in, in your orange juice. Okay. So things like that. But everything has some some of the four. Okay. So here it's talking about how the five, uh, those five omnipresent mental factors, um, 
will vary according to the different mental state, even though all five will be present. Okay, so how, how do they vary? When strong pain or pleasure is foremost, feeling is more prominent. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. When we are examining something and noting its characteristics, discrimination is stronger. When we are making plans and deciding what to do, intention is foremost. Okay. So all of those five, um, they're called omnipresent because they're in all the cognitions. They're all there, but depending upon what the mental state is, one or the other is going to be foremost. Yeah. Uh, why are contact and feeling included in name? Okay, when name is earlier in the causal sequence, then the links of contact and feeling. Okay, so here, you know, is a good example. Yeah, uh, name, you know, name is, is number four. Okay, uh, feel, feeling, no, contact is six, five is the six senses, six is contact, seven is feeling. Okay. So there's a few intervening in there, and they're coming later. How can they come later than name and form when they're part of name and form? Yeah, they should be there with name and form, right? Yeah, not come later. Well, according to the way in which we are talking about these, in some situations, you talk about them in a way that they come, one comes earlier. In another, another situation, you talk about it so that it comes later. Okay, it, it's it's like our order for going for lunch. Some days, you know, some people go for lunch first, and on Wednesdays, it's a different order. So depending upon which day you happen to arrive at the order, I mean, at the Abbey, uh, you know, the order in which you go for lunch is going to be different. Okay. But everybody at the end gets lunch. And that, and that, they're part of name. And name in the Pali tradition, you know, extends. It's, it's, it's much broader. The, the Sanskrit tradition just talk about, you know, it in a very small sliver of time, you know, so, so different explanations, but, and, but Lowrig, of course, talks about them all being present at the same time. Is it that also that it's a specific instance of it? Like the contact that comes as a later link is like a specific instance of contact, not necessarily this contact. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's the point. Okay. okay. That they talk about things in different circumstances. You know, and different circumstances also means different times, different functions, okay, that they they do different things, yeah? Okay, and, you know, and we look at this, and like, you know, they go from ignorance to second link, uh, you know, karma, and we're going, what happened to afflictions? We're always told afflictions, afflictions, afflictions are causing the karma. And now it's not even in there mentioned as its own link. 
You know, why not? Hmm? Yeah. So, you know, like I said before, some people, I mean, most people consider it as somewhere between one and two. Now, do you count it as one A or do you count it as minus two or, you know, if it's exactly in the middle, like, then can you really divide it? Do half of the afflictions go with one and half go with two? But ignorance is with one, but karma is with two, and it's related to both. And, you know, why is it like this way? Yeah, so please get born in, the, in a pure land and ask one of the Buddhas there. Okay, I do not have answers for these things. Okay, but I think the way I try and understand it and work with it is that it is an exercise in trying to make my mind flexible. Okay, to be able to see different things from different angles and different contexts. Yeah, and that is, you know... It's very interesting because we, you know, what role does education play in Buddhism? You know, yes, education is tremendously important. If you don't have an education, then how do you meditate? You don't know what to meditate on. So you need to learn. But the more we get educated, the more we tend to put things in boxes with certain names and arrange them in orders and we lose the ability to be flexible. Yeah. And so that, that one thing about think outside the box, you know, where you have to connect the dots and, you know, draw the line, we lose that ability because we're so intent on understanding things in relation to each other, which in one way makes complete sense and it helps us understand things better. In another way, it makes us also like this. Yeah? Because then when somebody explains it in a different way or we go to another culture and those that culture has different values or they do things in different ways, then we get really judgmental, like, what kind of people are these doing things like that? You know, and it's our education, you know. So it's, yeah, yeah. And for me, the, the, one of the greatest examples is, yeah, when young husbandsmen marched into Lhasa in 1908 with his British troops and the Tibetans were all along the, the road clapping and clapping, young husbandsmen said, they love us, they're welcoming us. Because in the West, that's how you show approval. In Tibet, that's how you chase away the spirits. Yeah. So they were not welcoming them. They were seeing them as spirits and chasing them away. Okay. And, and you see so often, you know, when you go and live in another culture, it's like, you know, how, how do things work here? You have to learn again how things work. Yeah. When I let, went to live in Singapore, I, I learned 
that questions often mean statements. Yeah. And, um, you know, you'd be walking along the street with your friend on one side and your friend says, uh, shall we cross the street? And before you can answer, they're already on the other side. So it actually meant cross the street, not shall we cross the street. Okay. When, uh, when, um, uh, my Tibetan friends <laughs> tell me that when they have a new Tibetan friend going to the West, they, they warn them when somebody offers you like, tea or a meal, if you want it or need it, say yes the first time they ask, because they will believe that. In Tibet, if you say yes, you're very rude. You're supposed to say no, no, no many times until they finally force it on you, even though you wanted it from the very beginning. Yeah. But if you don't understand this, then you get tangled up. So these are examples that are easier to understand how we get tangled up. But it's the same kind of function, you know, in, in our mind. Yeah. And how we have our arra- arranged things. You know. And that's why sometimes here, you know, things get a little cattywampus. Because one person has one way of thinking, another person has another way of thinking, and you're in the kitchen, and it's like, well, we're making, I don't know, you know, mashed potatoes today. So it's very clear when you make mashed potatoes that you first cut the potatoes in a certain way, and somebody else is going, that's ridiculous, you know, why don't we cook them in a different way? Yeah. Well, and it's just, you know, and how much we're attached to our way of thinking. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'll get off that soapbox, and I'll probably find another one to get onto. But, um, you know, to to think about this as, as that sometimes being where we get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when people first come to the Abbey. Yeah, do you remember when you first came to the Abbey? And it's like, what are these people doing? <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I went to a Buddhist talk, and there's a man in a skirt and a woman with a shaved head, and these people are bowing to a human being. Yeah, the way I grew up, you never bow to a human being. God forbade it. You know, that is idol worship. You never bow. You may bow to your your credit card, but never to another human being. Okay. And then you come into Buddha, and people are bowing to other people. Yeah. What kind of weird stuff is this? Yeah. And then you, there's an order that you stand in to go get your lunch. Who cares what order? You go to a restaurant with a buffet. Everybody just goes there whoever gets there first. Why are these people so stuck on the order in which they go to get their mashed potatoes? 
<laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, you look around everything and, and you go, what's going on here? Yeah. I went to another Buddhist center and they bowed with their hands like this. And now I come here and I'm told you got to stick your thumbs in, but still have to make your your hands stand straight up. What? This is nuts. Yeah? And then they tell you not to wear a watch, but you've got to be on time everywhere. <laughs> yeah, for sure this place is a nut house. <laughs> you know? Everybody in society wears a watch so that you can come five minutes late. Yeah? (laughs) So what's going on here? You know? And then somebody tells you that hot is not hot. (laughs) Yeah? So, yeah. Okay? So... Where were we? <laughs> okay. So why are contact and feeling included in name when name is earlier in the causal sequence than the links of contact and feeling? Why are feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors part of name as well as objects known by the mental source, which is part of the next link, the six sources? Huh? Yeah, I can't even understand the questions. <laughs> Different instances, here's the answer. Different instances of these mental factors are spoken of in each link, while one instance of contact and feeling occurs simultaneously with the link of name. Okay, so when the, the consciousness Uh, goes into the next body. They're simultaneous. Another instance of contact follows name and form. Okay. So when you're perceiving an object, yeah, the the contact is going to follow that. Yeah. And then feeling follow that. And similarly, one instance of the three mental aggregates may be included in name and form, while another instance is the object known by the mental source. So one time they're talking about it as the subjective side, the consciousness that's perceiving something. In another context, they're talking about uh, feeling and contact and miscellaneous factors as the object the mental consciousness is cognizing, for example, when you become aware of your different feelings of pain and pleasure. Okay? So we're talking about different instances here, and that, that's why that happens. Yeah? According to the Pali tradition, does the men, do, do the sources know objects? The sources are usually oh, sorry, the mental source. Yeah, that's yeah, right. the mental, the mental source, source is yeah, consciousness, mental consciousness. Mm. Yeah. So now the six sources. Okay, 
So the fifth link, six sources. So you notice, uh, well, you, you will notice, in the, you know, we'll talk about first link ignorance. It's qualified as first link because we're talking about ignorance in a specific context as being the, you know, the, the thing from which afflictions and then karma derive, you know, and so there we're talking about ignorance as the ignorance that, from the Prasangika viewpoint, that, that, uh, misinterprets or misunderstands how things exist and projects a false way of existence. Okay. Um, so here, when we say the fifth link, six sources, yeah, so talking about this specific instance of the fifth link, are the six cognitive faculties that exist in the nature of the polluted ripening result in other words, the five aggregates, during the time after the link of name and form has occurred and before the link of contact has come about. Okay, so it's actually quite a small time, you know, in the same way that name and form in the Sanskrit tradition is, is a very small time, yeah? Even though during your whole lifetime you have con- you have name and you have form, but in different ways you don't call them name and form. Then, okay. So, in the case of a human rebirth, the six internal sources—eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the mental cognitive faculties—develop in the womb. Okay, they enable us to cognize the six external f- sources. Visible form, sounds, odors, tastes, tactile objects, and phenomena. The phenomena source is objects of mental consciousness that are perceivable, perceptible by mind, but are not included in the first five external sources. Okay, so... The phenomena, all phenomena are perceptible by mind. But when we talk about the phenomena source, we're only talking about the ones that are, uh, not objects of our, um, of our five senses, you know, that are objects only perceptible by the, the mental consciousness. Okay. So. What does it it include? It includes the aggregates of feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors, and various subtle forms, such as dream objects and pratimoksha ethical restraints that cannot be known through the five physical senses. Okay, so here's where an example of where feeling and discrimination are discussed as the object of a mental consciousness instead of as part of a consciousness that is perceiving an object. Okay? And then there's these various subtle forms, yeah, such as dream objects, 
Yeah, now we all have our own theory about dream objects, you know. And they say, well, a dream horse exists. Yeah, no, that horse doesn't exist, we say. Yes, it exists as a dream horse. The dream horse does not exist as an actual horse, but there is such a thing as a dream horse. Okay? Don't ask me where it sleeps at night. <laughs> yeah, and don't ask me what it eats. I, am mo- I imagine that it eats dream hay. If, <laughs> if you happen to dream about a horse having dinner, okay? But maybe if your dream is when the horse is running, then there's, it doesn't eat dream hay, Okay. Something like that. Okay. So the cognitive faculties, at least here it should say the five uh, physical, no, the five uh, sense cognitive faculties. Yeah. Because they're referring to the, the, the five senses. Yeah. Are subtle sensitive forms located in the larger organs listed above, such as the eyeball. Okay, so, yeah, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, yeah. The, these external things are not the, uh, the sense faculty, or also, also we call it the sense power, yeah, but rather inside these things there's very these very subtle forms that uh, you can't see and you can't I don't think you can measure them by scientific instruments although maybe you can but uh, some people say that for the eye uh, you know the eye sense faculty is the um, rods and cones yeah so some people say that if that is, is that exactly what is meant in the Abhidharma? I'm not sure, but it's, it's kind of close enough. Can you see rods? Can you measure rods and cones somehow? Can you actually, well, you can't see them with your eye, but you need a microscope. So maybe that's why the Abhidharma says they're not perceptible by the eye. Yeah, because they didn't have microscopes then. Okay. When you see see something by an, a microscope, is it is that a reliable cognizer? Because it's not existing in the way that you're actually seeing it. Yeah. We had this discussion before when you hear uh, a tape recording or when you hear somebody's voice through a telephone. Yeah. Is that their voice? Is that uh, the voice of an animate, a- ana- animate, senti- animate sentient being? Yeah. Okay. So it, it's interesting. Yeah. Yes, it's that person. No, it's not. Person isn't there. Yeah. When Kenzer Wangdok gave the white Tara 
you know, Jenong, were we hearing his voice? Or were we hearing some concoction of what happens, you know, in, in wires? Huh? Yeah, right. Did we see him? No, we were just seeing pixels. That would be interesting in a court case, you know, now that everybody's using videos to, to show things in a court case. No, that's not, you know, no, Donald Trump did not say that. That's just, that's just sound coming over wires. Yeah. And nobody saw him, you know. He was he was just looking at pixels on 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 uh January 6th. He wasn't looking at, at what was going on in the <laughs> in the capital. He was just looking at colored pixels, that's all. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, they they may use that as as a defense too. <laughs> the way they're going. Anyway. Okay, so the cognitive faculties are subtle sensitive forms located in the larger organs listed above, such as the eyeball. Okay. Now, hunger is a tactile uh, sensation yeah so there's tactile what perceives hunger is hunger a separate thing or is it the absence of food or is it the presence of acid or whatever else in your yeah what is hunger actually Venerable Jigme, please correct me it's hormones like there's different hormones like ghrelin is released and there's different hormones that are released um, that trigger hunger um, that work in the brain. Um, so there's ghrelin is one of the hormones, and there's another hormone as well that triggers satiety. Um, and when these hormones, there's like, when there's problems with these hormones that can cause imbalances in overeating or undereating and different things, but different hormones are involved in hunger. Yeah, but what what is hunger? Is Is it just... Hormones, certain f- hormones floating around in your stomach, or is it are the hormones floating around in your brain, and so you feel hunger here, but there's actually no hunger in your belly. There's hunger in your brain. I think your experience with food um, also is colors then how what your relationship is, and you know how you how you uh, perceive. You know, if you're hungry or not, people that have not had enough food have a much different experience with food than people that yeah. always have. So right. there's many things that go into this, I yeah. think. But hunger is considered a, uh, a physical sensation. No, I don't think so. No? I think it's psychological and physical, both, I would say. Huh? Yeah, and from a Buddhist viewpoint, it's a tangible object. But from a scientific viewpoint, what is it? Yeah. Anyway, we're studying Buddhism now. So today, 
<laughs> yeah. It, today, it is going to be a tangible object, okay? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, these cog cognitive faculties, these subtle ones, function to connect an object and consciousness so that uh, cognition of the object occurs. The six are called sources because they are the sources for the arising of the six consciousnesses. If a sense faculty is injured and unable to function, the corresponding sensory function is also impaired. Hmm. I wonder if, according to science, if they take out your stomach, can you still be hungry because you have the hormones in your brain? We won't talk about that today, but it's just, <laughs> it's just a question, you know? Yeah, yeah, like phantom limbs, yeah, phantom hunger. Oh, that's why I always have the munchies. <laughs> but I have a stomach, too, I thought. Anyway, okay, so the body source is on the skin and inside certain areas of the body. It enables us to experience smooth and rough, hard and soft, and hot and cold, but remember, the hot isn't really hot, and cold is just a function of how much heat you have, as well as hunger and thirst. Yeah. The mental faculty is not form. It consists of the six consciousnesses that enable a later moment of mental consciousness to know objects. Okay. So the six consciousnesses, yeah, can be seen from the perspective of they are the six primary consciousnesses of, depending on the kind of object you're perceiving, or the, you can see the six consciousnesses as part of the mental source that uh, are connecting you with an object that may be an external object that was perceived by your physical senses, it's connecting that with now the mental consciousness so you can think about the object. Yeah. So different ways to talk about uh, the six consciousnesses. Okay, the tactile and mental faculties are present from conception onward. Okay. The remaining four cognitive faculties come into being as the embryo develops. Okay, So they're going to gradually come into being here. When the six cognitive faculties have formed, this link is complete, and the new being has the potential to experience objects through the coming together of the object, cognitive faculty, and preceding moment of consciousness. So last week, we were saying, okay, uh, can babies see things? Okay, let's just talk from a Buddhist perspective now. You know, when you have the, the six cognitive faculties and they've developed, yeah, so you have that subtle stuff in your eyes, yeah. Does that mean that the baby sees? I would think you, because it says here, um, the new being has the potential.
to experience the objects through the coming together of the object, cognitive faculty, and preceding moment of consciousness. So I would think that when the, uh, the, you know, the fetus is in the womb, it has the eye source, but it only has the potential to experience visual objects. Yeah, because it, it, you know, the eyes aren't open and they're filled with goo and like that. Okay, sentient beings are born in four ways. Now you're really going to love this one because this is, you know, your fourth grade science class. Yeah, you remember fourth grade science? You know, this is contradicts fourth grade science. Okay, sentient beings are born in four ways. By womb. Okay, we'll agree with that. By egg. Yeah. Heat and moisture. It sure looks like it. It looks like it. You know, did you notice yesterday the sun shone a little bit and the flies came out? Yeah, so it got a little bit warm and flies were born. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't see them before and they came out of nowhere. Yeah? Okay, so heat and moisture and spontaneously, boom, yeah, (laughs) I won't say that. Okay, (laughs) when beings such as devas and hell beings are born spontaneously, all cognitive faculties are complete and they are fully equipped to interact with their environment. That must be really shocking. Can you imagine, you know, you're going from human realm to hell realm and the the bardo for going to the hell realm is very, very short, you know? So you just died and then boom, like this, you're hit with all of your senses in the hell realm at one time. That must be pretty traumatic. A question arises, do all 12 links pertain to rebirth in the three realms, the desire, form, and formless realms. Okay, we're going to have a difference of opinion here. What do you, well, what do you think? Do you think all 12 links apply to all different forms, no matter? Yeah? So we'll cheat and go directly to Vasubandhu's answer. In the treasury of knowledge, he says that since beings in the form realm are spontaneously born and do not go through development in the womb, they lack the link of name and form because all their cognitive faculties are present at the time of conception. So you die from, uh, let's say, the human realm and you have uh, the karma and your mental state is still in the, the, the sphere of, let's say, the third Diana. Yeah. And you're born spontaneously. So boom, you know, you appear in the third Diana and all your facult- cognitive faculties are present at the time of conception. 
they're born spontaneously. So they don't, they're not born by, by the womb. They have all their sense objects, uh, sense faculties. Yeah. So they don't have, um, okay. So they lack the link of name and form. Yeah. Um, he also says there is no occasion for the link of name and form or for five of the six sources for beings in the formless realm because they do not have bodies. So they're born spontaneously, wham, they don't have name and form. And since they don't have bodies, gross bodies, they don't have the five physical senses either. Okay. So because they have only the mental source, they experience only 10 links, says Vasubandhu. Okay. Now, Asanga, his brother, says all 12 links are present in births in all three realms. So name and form. Can you see Asanga and Vasubandhu as little kids arguing with Chincha? No, they have 10 links. No, they have 12. You know, instead of fighting over who eats the dessert, you know, they fight over these. You know. Anyway. Okay. So Asanga differs, saying all 12 links are present in births in all three realms. Name and form are partially present in the form realm, because they have form. And in the formless realm, the link of name and form consists only of the mental consciousness. So from Vasubandhu's viewpoint, if you don't have all the factors of that link, that you don't have that link in that realm. From Asanga's viewpoint, if you have a part of that link, then it's considered having that link. Okay. So the link of six sources is partially present, yeah, in the formless realm, um, because the mental conscious, mental source exists, although the six, uh, uh, yeah, the five sense sources do not. Yeah. So the six sources afflict migrating beings because they complete name and form, thereby creating the potential for awareness of objects to arise. In all of the links, there's some sentence somewhere in the explanation that says the six sources afflict migrating beings because, and then it's, you know, or here it says the six sources, but in other ones it'll say this particular link afflicts sentient beings because. And it's very good to know what, what is the because to, and to give you an idea of why that is, is something that is afflictive. So in this one, yeah, six sources afflict transmigrating beings because they complete name and form, thereby creating the potential for awareness of objects to arise. Now we're going to read this and say, what's wrong with awareness of objects to arise? Why is that afflicting sentient beings? Yeah, we're here in the morning, we open up, we... Our eyes 
our ears always in contact with external objects. That external objects are the source of our knowledge. That's what we learn about in school. That's what we spend millions of dollars investigating and doing research on. External objects are so valuable. They give meaning to our lives. We want to perceive them. What is wrong with, I mean, how does awareness of objects afflict transmigrating beings? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. They induce our afflictions because as soon as we perceive an object, yeah, then as soon as there's contact, feeling comes. As soon as there's pleasant or unpleasant feelings, we react. Yeah, unpleasant feelings, I don't like it, get rid of it. Pleasant feelings, give me more, I love it. And then that, and that's the story of our life, isn't it? I want this, I want this, I want this. I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. You know? And so we're these emotional yo-yos with a fickle mind that can't figure out what we want, what we don't want. Yeah? But it all comes because we perceive these external objects and we think these objects exist in the way they appear to our senses. You know, so when there's a pleasant object, we think that the pleasure is inside that object. You know, I mean, it's so true with chocolate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we go in there and you see chocolate, you know, looking at the chocolate does not satisfy, does it? Absolutely not. Why not? Because the pleasure is inside the chocolate. So it's got to have contact with your tongue. Don't you know that? Yeah? It has pleasure in it. So I want it. Okay. And the song, the music we like, there is pleasure in that music. Definitely. So I have to look at this rendition of it and that rendition and see which rendition is best so that we can use it in our skits and then listen to a few more in case they might be better, but I know they won't be, but, you know, it's a good excuse for listening to more music, um, you know, because the pleasure is in those sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And especially uh, communication with living beings, you know. The pleasure or pain is in their words. Isn't it? Yeah. There's nothing subjective in, in our uh, involved in the way we're cognizing it. Yeah. When someone says, I hate your guts, in those sounds, you see those sound waves? There is pain in those sound waves. 
right? Yeah. Somebody else says, oh, you're wonderful. I love you. There is pleasure in those sound waves. Yeah. But if you speed up, up the sound waves, they can become light rays, right? I thought sound was, was just slow, slower. But they're both waves. Yeah. Yeah. They're both waves. Are you discriminating between waves? So, so waves have different media. So if I, if, I, if I took a water wave, could I turn it into a wave on a string or a slinky? Yeah. Oh, the medium is different. Yeah, but a wave is just energy. Why can't it transfer from water to a string? Actually, that, that would work. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And we have mechanisms to transfer the energy from a sound wave into light. For instance, if we wanted to send uh, communication via fiber optics, mm-hmm. but the, the waves are different. Yeah, but as long as you can transfer it, make one <laughs> into the other, they must have some similar qualities. In that they're ways of encoding information? No, they're just... <laughs> I'm trying to agree with you. <laughs> how how uh, dependent is the wave on the medium? The wave would not exist without the medium. So it's one with the medium? Hmm. Is the the wave in the water one with water? Is it it different than water? Is the wetness of the water different from water? The wetness is the nature of the water. Okay. This is where I need to learn these definitions and go study debate maybe next year in retreat. Okay, yeah. We'll we'll give you some time. Okay. But I wonder when the monks are studying uh, science in, um, you know, in the monasteries, if they debate this or not. Yeah, we should ask. Okay. Uh, Okay. So, questions? Someone says, "If if seeing through a microscope is to be disallowed as a reliable cognizer, then it seems to me that no sense perception can be reliable. All sense signals are modified by the medium that they pass through. Mm. Okay, tell that to Dharmakirti. See what he says. Yeah, because the, the, waves, are, the waves are modified, huh? So even what reaches our our eyes, for example, isn't what left the object. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm wondering, uh, on kind of the microscope question, so would we say that a person who has good vision, Uh you know, doesn't wear glasses, has reliable perception, but 
for instance, Venerable you, when you wear glasses, is that a reliable cognizer? Or if you are not wearing glasses, it's a reliable cognizer. cognizer. It seems like it's a similar question. Right, right. And they didn't have glasses at the time these scriptures were written. So, so these are the kind of things we should find out if they debate this kind of stuff. Yeah. And how they, they put it together. His Holiness was very eager for a lot of this Abhidharma material to get translated into English, you know, so because he thought that the scientists and other people would be very interested in it. But I wonder how they're, they're seeing it and what they think about it. And yeah. So how you describe things also depends on the tools you have. Yeah, so we could, yeah, make a, a 2022 version of the Abhidharma, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, yeah. You know, because when you learn things, you think, okay, I'm, I'm learning this. This is factual, objective material. And we, we never think that this is influenced by culture or history, or economics, or the medium through which it, it comes. Yeah. We always think what we're learning and perceiving is objective, out there knowledge, verifiable by everybody. COVID is a perfect example of how here you have something that's changing moment by moment. The objectivity keeps changing, and everybody's interpretation of what's being perceived, perceived is also... yeah all over the place. Right. So what's, what's true? What's. I, uh, I just learned a new phrase uh, because I'm supposed to talk about this <laughs> in a few months at a talk called confirmation bias. Have you ever heard of that phrase? Confirmation bias. Yeah. So yeah, some people have. So it means that Whatever you already believe, yeah, you in whatever information you receive, you interpret in such a way so that it believe it reaffirms what you already believe. Or you look for material that reaffirms what you already believe. Okay. So the idea is we're, we're looking for com- confirmation of our beliefs, and so that can be biased. Yeah. yeah, like my slogan of first you decide what you believe, and then you find the scriptures to, that agree with that. Yeah, regarding some issues. Yeah, and that's why there's debate. I wonder, the Buddha was hesitant to teach. If there's confirmation bias, which makes total sense, like, who would believe what he's saying? It's amazing Mm -hmm. that we do. Yeah. And some people don't. There's uh, six six sources uh, pertaining to direct perception. No, not always. Because the five five physical sources are... You're perceiving the object. It doesn't mean that those are all valid perceptions, yeah? But the mental source 
Yeah, the, that one is uh, often, it's conveying information that then you think about and you conceptualize about. Because the example that was given was dream objects and the Pratik Moksha ethical restraint. Yeah. So these are direct uh, are they direct perception? Oh, I see, direct mental perception. Yeah, but for dream objects, when you're dreaming at night, that would be a direct mental perception, right? Yeah, yeah I've always thought of it as conception, but, you know, they... But I've, the teachings I heard usually say that it's, it's an actual, some kind of subtle form. Now I'm just saying what, what was in Elizabeth Knapper's book, Mind in Tibetan Buddhism, it mentions there's two viewpoints. Ah. Some say uh, dreams are conceptual. Some say they're mental direct perceptions. Huh. So. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, when it mentions the phenomena source, it only mentions um, the aggregates of feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors. Why not the aggregate of consciousness? Because consciousness cannot perceive itself. Oh, but it can oh, perceive, perceive Yeah. Oh, yeah. It could perceive other consciousnesses. Maybe this is or just a previous some moment. The, some of what's included. Yeah. In Does it say and so forth somewhere? Um, no. <laughs> yeah, you always add and so forth to cover yourself. <laughs> like you either put and so forth or in general. Yeah. Going back to page 162. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out. This first part, it says, grasping the aggregates as inherently existent gives rise to grasping the I that is merely designated independence on them to exist inherently. So in our thinking, Mm -hmm. what's going on when you're grasping the aggregates, first of all, and then it leads right into grasping the I? Okay. Okay. Well, the aggregates are the basis of designation of the I, so you're going to be perceiving the aggregates first before you perceive the eye. It comes very quickly, you know. So if you perceive the aggregates as inherently existent, then very quickly when, you know, you're perceiving the eye, you're also going to perceive the eye as inherently existent. You're not thinking about any of this. No. So it's not like you're in a triggered state or something. No, no. To happen. Yeah. It, well, um, if you're actually grasping, yeah, then you're in a triggered mm-hmm. state. But when we grasp, you know, the thought process is like like this. You know, when somebody makes you mad, I mean, sure, there's sometimes when you really sit there and you you organize your thoughts and make the drama about how somebody made you mad, but often. You know, like if somebody goes like this, it's like, I don't like it. You don't sit and think, oh, well, let's see, is that inherently existent? And eyes inherently existent? And 
Oh, yeah, I don't like that. That's inherently exists. Oh, yes, I'm angry, you know. So isn't that going on all the time then, really? The grasping at inheritance? It's, it's, it's there a lot. Yeah. A lot. Not all the time. Because there are times, you know, when we're, we're not especially triggered, you know, where things appear inherently existent, but we aren't grasping them as inherently existent. Okay? So like your little toe right now. Okay, now you're paying attention to your little toe. But when you were speaking, were you paying attention to your little toe? Yeah. Were you grasping it? It is inherently existent. No. Yeah. But if somebody steps on it, then what? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh, a physicist is going to ask me a question. (laughs) question about um, uh, the five omnipotent, Omnipresent mental factors, because uh, it says there that the the strength of each one will vary. Yeah. So what does this mean, the strength? Well, uh, how powerful it is in your cognition. Like the example, if you're feeling, uh, well, like if somebody steps on your little toe, yeah, that feeling of pain is going to be predominant in your mind. You're not going to be having discrimination where you're thinking so much about the pain. Yeah. And you're not, you're not going to be thinking about you're planning what you're going to do with the pain. It's just the feeling is dominant at that, for that cognition. Yeah. Huh? I think I some. No, no, they're all there, but they're all at different strengths. It's like, Everybody here is in the room, but you're all in different levels of being awake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh-huh. I am trying to follow following the, the, the teachings. And, uh, does the karma interfere or influence the senses? I think... One way karma can ripen is that it does influence the sentences, you know. And the way I make sense of this is that, um, yeah, because people see things in different ways. So does that influence the, the physical sense or does that influence the mental sense? Well, in some ways, very clearly, it it influences the mental sense, whether you like something or don't. Your karma will influence that. Will it influence exactly how you see it? I think that could be quite possible, because when we see something, we may see different, different people may pick out different details. Yeah. Just on a, on a physical level. Yeah. The name and form in the Pali tradition, I'm not understanding what is the difference between the, it says name is a collective term for the other three mental aggregates. Yeah. And the five mental factors. So like feeling and discrimination as mental aggregates and feeling and discrimination as mental factors. Are they different definition? No, it's just different ways of seeing them, you know? Like feeling, yes, it's a mental factor in the context 
of the, the five omnipresent ones, you think, oh, in every, you know, cognition, there's some element of feeling. But when you really think feeling the, the aggregate, then you're really thinking, oh, what is feeling? Oh, it's, it's painful feelings, pleasurable feelings, neutral feelings, physical, you know, physical feelings, mental feelings. And so you're, you're looking at it in a, in a closer way. Yeah. Instead of as part of something. Yeah. This will be the last one. Um, going back to consciousness, there was the analogy used about how the death time consciousness and then the rebirth time consciousness is like a stamp. Um, there's nothing that travels between one moment, one life to the next. Yeah. Um, could that analogy be applied to every moment of mind that is like a stamp? Sure. Yeah. What it, it's what this what the stamp is is the analogy is how information is passed from one moment to the next. Okay. Okay.